Chrysler will tell the story of the worst race ever held. The 1903 Paris to Madrid rally was the biggest calamity ever seen on four wheels, cars that were too fast, crowd control that was too lacking, and ultimately a death toll that was too staggering to continue after the first day. A wild story from 1903. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit nitroactive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at nitroactive.net. So unfortunately for us, that sound is as close as any of us in the modern world will ever get to being at the Versailles Gardens in France on May 24th, 1903 at 3.30 in the morning. And that sound you heard is a 13-liter four-cylinder Bugatti Type 5 engine, or the type of engine that was found in a Bugatti Type 5 racer, the type of car that competed in the 1903 Paris to Madrid rally. And as I mentioned, the race started at 3.30, basically 3.45 in the morning. We'll get to all those details about an event that I have called the worst race ever held. And it kind of is. There are races that have a higher body count. There are races that have perhaps a little bit more modern, um, infamous reputation. But when it comes to an event that was just a complete and utter calamity, to the point of it almost being comical because we're 117 years removed from it at this point, it really doesn't get any better or worse than this Paris to Madrid rally. So we have to start talking about wow, how this event came together and kind of what the point was. And the point was, very simply, to promote automobiles. It's 1903. The car is still very new technology. Nine years previous to this, in 1894, an event um, was held, the Paris to Rouen race, 78-mile race in 1894, a three-horsepower car won that event in 1894. The average speed uh, was I don't know, about 10 miles an hour. It took seven hours to complete the 78-mile trip from the city of Paris to the city of Rouen, France. And that is considered the first automobile race. And yes, there are probably smaller events that happen, little sprint races here or there in the late 1890s. But when it comes to a big full-scale race, that Paris to Rouen event in 1894 is it. We move forward a few years into 1901, and there was a Paris to Berlin race. And the Paris to Berlin, Berlin race, um, because the automobile had gotten a little bit more popular, because the automobile had captured more of the public conscious at that point, was even more popular. A lot more entries, it was a lot longer distance, but it was also a lot bigger spectacle, and it was also a kind of a big pain in the neck for the French government to try and keep this thing organized and it did result in some fatalities, including a child that was hit by one of the cars during the race. So already after 1901, the French government's kind of out of the racing game. They're not really interested in being involved in auto racing anymore. And you have to also remember at this time in history in 1903, there is no such thing as a racetrack. Uh, we've talked about this in other podcasts, but in 1903, um, you saw horses race in a circle. And you saw cars race on public streets. Land speed records were being set at this time on public roads. That's how things went. You closed off public streets and raced cars. Um, it was almost kind of just expected as that that was how it was going to work. There was no real conception yet of building an actual race course, of building an actual facility to, to have racing um, in a contained environment. It was all happening on the uh, on the mean streets, and a lot of it was happening in France. Another thing we have to talk about to set the scene, why France? Doesn't that seem like a strange place? 
1903, France was the center of the automotive world. There was no country that had more manufacturers. There was no country that had more advanced technology in automobiles than France did in 1903. So it only made sense in some ways for France to be the center of this type of activity. The companies that they had there from Bugatti to uh, to Dion to Duroc to other manufacturers, they were leading the way across the world. Yes, the Germans had great stuff. Mercedes was building cars. Carl Benz, obviously, uh, in the business there in Germany. And their, their, their technology, their ability to compete was certainly up there. And as we talk about the race itself, we'll hear some of those familiar names. But there are also emerging Colossus companies in, in France as well. Renault, for example, will play a big part in this series, or this story, I should say. And Renault would go on to, to this point to be one of the largest auto manufacturers on earth. American cars in 1903, they existed. Uh, they existed in the piecemeal, crazy buckshot fashion that, that would define uh, American automobile manufacturing for 20-some years from this point forward. They did not exist on a level or a scale or a scope to compete with the European manufacturers at this point. Nobody was building anything grand enough or fast enough to really compete with these more exotic makes. This being said, rich Americans could compete in this race because they were buying these cars from Europe, these, these machines that were built for speed and these machines that were built with the advanced technology of the time. The same can be said for England. England was making some inroads. They had a marketplace there. There was manufacturing. But we really look at France as the center of the automotive world in 1903, as weird as it is perhaps to say that out loud. So what is this event going to be? It is going to be, as, as proposed by the organizers, uh, a four-stage rally. And it's about a 780, 800-mile trip uh, from the gardens of Versailles at Versailles Palace outside of Paris and Versailles, France, to Bordeaux. That was going to be the first leg. Then Bordeaux to Vitoria, Spain is the second leg. And then for Vitoria, Spain to Madrid, the, the third leg. So I guess technically three three legs on this trip and again over the course of the three legs you're talking about a total of about uh, 800 miles the first one from Versailles to Bordeaux was going to be the longest one about 330 miles it was also the one that presented the best roads for making high speed so um, in many ways the the French organizers were going to kind of be able to tout this particular portion of the rally as their big um, coming out party, the big speeds, the, the advanced roadways, all this type of stuff. So um, I mentioned that after the 1901 Berlin race that the French government wasn't exactly into the idea of hosting another big giant auto race on public roads. Um, the you know There was public statements made after that 1901 race that that was it, that this would never actually happen again uh, in France. And the big problem with saying something will never happen again anywhere is that it always ends up happening again. And this is what happened in France because mainly King Alphonse, uh, who was the leader of Spain at this time, King Alphonse the 13th, I should mention, not to be confused with the 12th, 11th, 10th, 9th, 8th, and so forth, was very much uh, in strong support of the event because he saw the promotional value for Spain. And um, what Alphonse did, interestingly enough, 110 years ago was he used the media to pressure the French government into allowing this race and he used the media by planting stories by making statements and by basically I don't want to say taunting but in some ways pressuring the government of France to go hey uh, you know you guys are supposedly the leader in the industry you guys are supposedly you know the uh, the epicenter of the most advanced technology that we have in the automotive world so um, how could you cancel this race how could you not let this happen. It's it 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 goes counter to your entire uh, your entire position, and the Automobile Club of France, which turns out to be a fairly uh, powerful organization, um, argued with the Prime Minister directly about the legality of having this race, saying that hey, listen, these roads are public places; they're public spaces. We should be able to do with them as we want. The people are dying to see this, the, 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 the French public, the Spanish public. You have hundreds of thousands of people who want to check this race out, and it would be good for your government to give the people what they want. And the local businesses wanted the race to go through their town. I mean, 
all of the same things we talk about today when it comes to big events were in effect in 1903. It was the balance of the inconvenience of closing the roads, the inconvenience of having these big crowds show up at places versus the positive economic impact of it, the positive social impact of it, the, you know, giving the people something to see basically for free. You know, you your government allowed this. This is a great idea. You're supporting your manufacturing base. It is all the same political type of stuff that we talk about in 2020, but it was going on in 1903 as well. So finally, the agreement is reached the Prime Minister, uh, Emile Combs of France at that time, decides that he will allow this to go forward, and the French manufacturing or automotive companies love this idea. Um, they were a huge part of the French economy at that point, and you know, you look at different figures, you look at what the size of it was. You know, these are 1903 numbers, remember, but somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people were working in the French automotive industry at that point, and uh, they were a, a large driver of the economy. And this race was going to help promote the brands of cars they were manufacturing and hopefully, you know, once again, prove the French superiority um, of this event, the French superiority of us being able to have this race, of us building the best cars in the world. National pride is on the line. The Council of Ministries, uh, an important governmental body in France, basically uh, took the prime minister's recommendation and they allow the event. So on February 17th, 1903, they say, yes, you're, we're in for this. You can do it. We'll follow your plan. We'll use the route that you laid out, and the event will, will happen on May 24th of 1903. Hedging their bets, the Automobile Club of France had been accepting applications into the event since the middle of January. So before it was even approved, these guys had started taking money, and that is in the grand, the grand tradition of every race promoter uh, clearly in the history of racing has done this, has taken the money and uh, kind of uh, get the money in your pocket first and then figure out how to make it work after. So for those of you that are new to the world of racing, this has been going on for 117 years. Race promoters have been and will be who they always are. It's a high risk proposition, but hey, if you can make it work, you get paid. So now that we have a date, now that we have governmental approval, we really need to start talking about the classes, the cars, and who's going to be competing in this event. And it is a who's who from around the world of famous drivers and of famous cars in 1903. So understandably, there was a massive amount of excitement about this event, and the fact that the Automobile Club of France had already begun collecting entry fees um, about a month before they even got uh, got permission to have the race uh, kind of illustrates that fact. And the other thing to think about here is 315 cars were entered, or 315 people were entered, and we'll get to how many showed up when the race starts, but 315 racers enter the event and the event had was broken into four different categories there were there was a class for cars that were under 400 kilograms voiturettes so in in french we call a car a voiture so uh the voiturettes were the little small tiny light cars and these were not sports cars of the day but these were like the common cars these were uh the buggies really if you will which Almost like in Baja racing, the guys that still race the stock Volkswagens a thousand miles through the desert, like the Voiturette class in this event really to me is the, the one that stands out as like the most hardcore. Yes, they were the slowest things there, but also they had no amenities. Most of them were probably steered with a tiller. You're talking stuff that made three to five horsepower tops, maybe 10 on a good day. That was pretty wild. The next class up was cars that weighed 400 to 650 kilograms. And again, now we're talking touring cars. We're talking um, uh, more luxurious, robustly built, better stuff. You know, not the not the complete little horseless carriage, really, that a, that a, the Voiturette class would, uh, would, would show off. There were 54 motorcycles entered. Uh, again, motorcycles huge. Bicycling, um, still a global phenomenon in 1903. Bicycle racers were among the most famous and well-paid athletes in the world at this time. So motorcycles uh, were capturing the, the public attention almost as, as rapidly as automobiles were. And finally, the, the biggest class, there was uh, 88 entries in the 650 to 1,000 kilogram car class. Now we're talking the big boys. And these are the cars that people really showed up to see. The 1,000 or 650 to 1,000 kilogram uh, cars were the 
Mercedes. They were the Decovilles. They were the Moors. And I'm going to go into detail. I'm going to go into detail on some of these cars in just a little while. But to kind of set the stage as far as what we're going to be talking about here, the, the heavy car class, the most horsepower, the most speed, and the most danger by a lot. And when we start to talk about the things that made this the worst race ever held, these big heavyweight cars are the entire reason this event goes down into the kind of ignominy that it lives in history with. Simply put, the people's brains in terms of engineering ability was way ahead of the technology available at the time for braking, for suspension, and for tires. We add that to the fact that the roads, despite how quote-unquote advanced they are for 1903, are still garbage as compared to today. They're dirt, they are rocks, they are cobblestones, they're brick, they're paved, they're not paved, they're uh, uneven, rutted, all these things. So we have these huge cars, very heavy, loads of horsepower. I mentioned that engine that we heard to start the show was a 13-liter four-cylinder. This is not uncommon. When we talk about these huge cars, we're going to talk about engines that are only four-cylinders, sometimes six, but they are eight, nine, ten-liter engines. They don't rev for anything because the pistons are so enormous and heavy that they can't turn revs because the whole thing would fly apart. But when you have stroke, uh, these engines that have stroke of six inches plus, they make such ginormous amounts of torque that even at low RPM, they can make a lot of speed with gearing. And these are chain-driven cars, of course, of that era, 1903. So when we talk about a transmission and shifting gears, ultimately we're talking about chain drive on the rear axle. And some of the big developments are a direct drive for these cars in high gear. And that direct drive is what we're going to talk about in a little while when we get to speed. In terms of entering the race, uh, the cost to to enter, 50, 50 francs if you're entering a uh, voiturette class or motorcycle entry, and up to 400 francs. And interestingly, the heavy cars were basically, you paid on weight. So again, the 50 francs, motorcycles, the voiturettes, the 400 francs, if you had the heaviest car available, if you had a 1,000-kilogram car, you had to pay the 400 francs. If it was lighter than that, you got a little bit of a, a break. But um, the cool thing also about the heavyweight class is that they were the only classes that were allowed to have a driver and a riding mechanic. So and at the time, the common language for this was you had a chauffeur, the driver, and you had a machinist that was the mechanic. That was kind of the way that that uh, these people were described. When you read the vintage reports of races at this time, especially this one, you hear about chauffeurs and you hear about mechanic or machinists, and the machinist is the riding mechanic. The mechanic could not weigh less than sixty kilograms. How about that? They had to weigh. They they did not want you to. Uh, fudge the weight of your vehicle by having a flyweight mechan mechanic or machinist. So they weighed the machinist, and he had to weigh at least 60 kilograms to actually uh, to actually get in the car and, and make you legal. I mentioned that the race was planned to be started at the Gardens of Versailles, in Versailles at Versailles Palace, uh, a very stately, gorgeous place. Had a chance to visit there a decade plus ago while on a trip to Europe, and it's uh, it's an amazing place and. I had no clue at the time that there was any sort of an automobile race ever held or started on the grounds, but when you've been there or just go look at photos, you get the you get the whole picture about just the grandeur of this location and why it kind of makes some theatrical sense to start this event, which was billed as kind of the race to end all races. This is undoubtedly, at in 1903, the largest, the most elaborate, and in some ways the most important automotive event ever held. Outside of, you know, Henry Ford building his first quadricycle or some other very small things that are happening around the globe, in terms of a global spectacle, this is it. And you're going to be shocked to find out how much coverage this thing ended up getting once it gets underway. Because, again, before the internet, before any sort of real swift electronic um, communication, the whole world knew about the Paris to Madrid 1903 race very shortly after it began. Speaking of beginning, the way that the race was planned to start is just like in uh, normal rally racing, the competitors were released, planned to be released one at a time 
one car leaving every two minutes. And the planned start was at 3.30 in the morning for a couple of reasons. The first was crowd control. They figured 3.30 in the morning, streets will be relatively empty during these first 100 or so miles when the cars are having to go through some fairly populated areas. It should get everybody through there before the throngs of people show up and there's a lot of danger. Secondly, because this was a 330 mile an hour, a 330 mile leg of the rally, the first of those three legs I mentioned, almost half the distance being covered in the first day here, they decided to get everyone off early so that they could arrive, even at a slow pace, could arrive at the destination in Bordeaux, France, fairly early. The reason is because Bordeaux, France was going to be electronically or electrically illuminated for the first time in its history on this evening. This evening of May 24th, 1903 was planned to be a major celebration in Bordeaux. The race cars were going to come into town. The city was going to be electrically lit for the first time. It was going to be kind of a, a, a wonderfully uh, French moment. Everyone's going to be drinking wine and champagne and celebrating these great automobiles, these brave drivers, and the great advancement of technology with the elect electrification and the electric lighting of Bordeaux on that night. A couple things that never happened. One... The city never got lit that night. Two, the vast majority of people never made it to Bordeaux. And three, all the plans that racers the race organizers had made went completely pear-shaped starting at about 3.30 in the morning on May 24th, 1903. The second this race was about to start, its fate takes a turn for the absolute bad. And before we start sending cars into the breach, we need to talk about what those cars are, what those cars were, and exactly what the competitors are trying to manhandle over the roads of Paris, France. So I'm certainly not going to get into every one of the various weird models that were competing in the event, but I feel like giving a few examples of the cars that kind of uh, make up the general sense of each of the four categories is important so you understand what these guys uh, uh, what these guys were racing through the streets of France to try to get to Bordeaux, and then, of course, on to the second leg and then the third leg ending in Madrid. Starting with the motorcycle category, Typically in 1903, when we talk about a motorcycle, we are actually talking about little more than a bicycle frame, maybe of slightly larger stock, with a gas tank and a single-cylinder engine that is producing somewhere between 2 and 4 horsepower. Uh, Peugeot entered a racing motorcycle, so we can the factory Peugeot entry had a, a 2-horsepower engine on it, um, and it was no suspension, very narrow tires, bicycle handlebars. It was a motorized bicycle, and it was, as the factory entry from one of the largest companies emerging in France, uh, probably one of the more advanced machines in that, uh, in that class of competition. So, if you're on a motorcycle, you're talking about two horsepower, and no suspension other than the two little valve spring-sized springs underneath your fanny on the seat. We move into the uh, next rung up the watcherette category that I mentioned, we're going to talk about a Renault. So when we talk about how small this and how light these uh, watcherette or, or mini cars were in this category, these things weighed like 400 to 500 pounds. They were quadricycles. They were basically four bicycle tires, a tiny engine, and barely enough room for two people to sit on. One to two cylinder engines, horsepower ranging from three to six on the upper end, three to eight maybe on the uh, on the really pushing it end. And for instance, uh, Renault uh, entered this category and had some success. There was a lot of manufacturers uh, of these voiturettes because they were cheap and they were a volume seller. Um, you can imagine there's a balance to everything. So if you have these manufacturers making the huge high performance, high horsepower luxury cars, you have to have somebody on the other end of the scale making these very small machines that were basically runabouts. They were not designed or intended to be driven 800 miles, maybe even their in their lifetime, let alone over the course of a three-day racing event. So those, uh, as I mentioned before, Outside of the motorcycles, probably the most punishing category in this event would be that for the mini cars because they were so light. Everybody's wide open to the elements and they were absolutely barge slow. Now we can talk about the, the second 
uh, to highest rung of the category. Those cars that have more weight, have more substance. We'll use the 1903 Didion Bouton as the example here. And the Didion was a really nice car. And, and this company developed a lot of really neat stuff over the course of its life. We don't really talk about uh, Didion much in the world of 2020, but the 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 Dion style rear axle that they developed over the course of their existence was used in race cars for decades into the 1960s and sports cars used the uh, the Dion style axle for for many many years but this car is uh, typically what we in your mind's eye you can see as a touring car of the early 1900s and for those of you that aren't familiar with this era in history kind of picture a Model T that's really what we're talking about when we talk about a touring car of this period open top uh, kind of that tub like area where the driver and passenger are likely a four seater there's likely room behind them uh, squared off hood spoked wood wheels all that kind of stuff so use that as your visual reference when we talk about this car two cylinder engine 12 horsepower and you're you're looking at a a top speed of somewhere in the 30 to 40 mile an hour range, maybe 50, depending on if uh, any of the factory works cars had been kind of uh, hopped up a little bit. They had suspensions underneath them. They had uh, rear wheel brakes only. That'll be a common theme here. And really the, the, the middle class, upper middle class car of the day. You knew you were kind of somebody that had a little bit of money if you could afford a car like a Didion uh, because it was, you know, f nicely finished. It was, you, you could cruise by the people in the little Renault voiturette and kind of uh, laugh at them as you drove by with your nice full-size automobile. Then we move into the heavyweight category. These are the cars that weighed up to a thousand kilograms and I'm going to give you two examples here. 1903 Mercedes. This is a 9.2 liter four-cylinder so 567 cubic inch four-cylinder engine 60 horsepower at 1150 rpm. That is 1,150 RPM. As you can imagine, huge heavy pistons, really long stroke, absolutely no ability to RPM uh, because of the weight of the, the rotating assembly in these engines. And, you know, really everybody's just kind of learning how to make internal combustion engines last for any amount of time at this point in history. So the car weighed 2,200 pounds, rides around on semi-elliptic springs. So it's very bouncy as all cars are in this time period and manual rear brakes only. The theory on having <clears throat> rear brakes only in these cars was that you needed the front wheels to be turning when you were braking. You needed you. It was too dangerous to have front brakes because, uh, as we all know, like on a bicycle, if you grab that front brake too hard, the front wheel skids and you wipe out. So the theory was, hey, we're going to put the brakes on the rear axle, which allows uh, hand brake, hand you know, steering can be done when this is happening. A lot of these cars also had a driveline brake. So there was a brake on the driveline and there was a brake on the rear axle. The problem here is that these were manual brakes. Normally the, normally the driveline brake was operated by a foot pedal and the rear brake was operated by a hand lever to give the driver a lot of mechanical advantage to, to set those brakes. So you have this very heavy one-ton car with manual steering all the weight is on the nose and you're going to use one of your hands to apply the brakes and the other hand is supposed to be turning this wheel that has some ridiculously bad steering you know ratio aspect ratio to it so it's a big set of compromises as all cars are but in 1903 the compromises were really really big so if you got one hand on the brake lever outside the body of the car your foot stopping on the driveline brake and only one hand on this big wheel trying to manipulate the car you can only imagine how successful that would be the last example of cars we're going to give in this race the 1903 Moors, and that's M-O-R-S. And I encourage you to, to do a Google image search of a 1903 Moors to really get a picture of what this was because not only was it one of the most successful cars in the race, but it was certainly uh, one of the most unique. The body was shaped like a giant upside-down canoe. And I mean that it, it literally looks like they took a huge canoe, flipped it upside down, and set it down over top of an automotive chassis. The wheels kind of stick out to the sides. The radiator, which is this kind of bizarre contraption, is kind of down under the front of the car. And the Moors was the creme de la creme of this event. Four-cylinder engine, 11.5-liter four-cylinder engine. Okay, so we're talking way more than, uh, way more than 600 cubic inches. 70 horsepower at 1100 rpm so it was the biggest most muscular thing weighed 2500 pounds so it came in right about that 1000 kilogram maximum 
and of course rear wheel brakes only. The Moore's factory entered a few uh, entry, or there are a few Moore's cars entered in this race, and we're going to talk more about the Moore's as we get into the racing action. But the Moore's, you know, really stands out as as the top of the top of the food chain when it comes to 1903 French automotive dominance and the car that the kind of French fans were likely rooting the hardest for. It was in the heavyweight category. It would be taking on. The Mercedes, it would be taking on um, machines built by Bugatti. It would be taking on machines built by the other manufacturers. Even though Bugatti is a French company, Moore's was the top of the food chain, and it had the best, some of the best drivers as well. So now you know some of the combatants and what this thing is. You know what uh, the setup was. You know the kind of consternation as far as the government goes. You now know the, the cars. Let's talk about the race itself. And before we get to the race... I'm going to give you some audio to set your mind into that 1903 mood. The next engine you hear running is going to be the sound of that 1903 Mercedes with its 9.2 liter four-cylinder heading up a race course. This is the actual car or one of the cars identical to those that competed in the 1903 race. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So now that you've heard that 1903 engine, you have a little bit of an idea of what the spectators would hear when this race started. That is exactly what the Mercedes would have sounded like driving off of the starting platform at 3.30 in the morning, except things didn't start at 3.30 in the morning. So the plan was, as mentioned, all the competitors would arrive at Versailles at the the Versailles Park at at the Palace. They would have a starting ceremony and off they would leave at 3.30 in the morning. What was not planned for was the fact that a couple hundred thousand people showed up. The idea of them leaving early in the morning to avoid traffic and crowds went completely out the window because this was such a grand spectacle. The people of Paris didn't want to miss it. They didn't want to see the start of this incredible race. So as the competitors are starting to form up, it's taking a long time for people actually to get their way through the crowd and actually get to uh, the you know lineup area where things are going to get going. And there's a British guy named Charles Jarrett who is driving a car that has been, uh, for whatever reason, picked to be the guy who's leading off. He was probably the first guy to enter the race. He's driving a Dededrick is the name of the car. It has one of those giant engines, the type of which that you um, effectively heard moments ago. So I'm going to read from you a firsthand account from him about starting this race and what it was like. This comes directly from Mr. Charles Jarrett and was written in 1903, very shortly after the event. And I quote, Picking my way carefully through the thousands of sightseers in Versailles, I arrived at the park from which the start was to take place and got to the front of the long line already formed. The thousands assembled to see the start had availed themselves of every possible point of vantage, and a dense, living mass filled the road right through the park. The rising of the curtain on the last great act of road racing of the old style was dramatic and inspiring, with a vast concourse assembled to witness it. And unhappy as I was when I considered my own chance of winning the race, it was nevertheless a thrilling moment when my when taking my place, the very first car to start, with hundreds to follow me to Madrid. Deniff was the number two starter, and Louis Renault number three. Those of us in front decided that it was too dark at 3.30, this time fixed for the start. So as a respite of further 15 minutes was granted before dispatching me. 
I asked what would happen to the swaying mass of people blocking the road when I started, and the only answer I received was a shrug of the shoulders and a reply that they would clear soon enough once I got going. The soldiers intended for keeping the course clear were swallowed up in the huge concourse of spectators and disorder reigned supreme. 3.45 at last. On with the switch, and away went the motor. A hundred handshakes and a mighty roar from the crowd, and I was off. It seemed impossible that my swaying, bounding car could miss the reckless spectators. A wedge-shaped space opened up in the crowd as I approached, and so fine was the calculation made that at times it seemed impossible for the car not to overtake the apex of the human triangle and deal death and destruction. I tried slowing down, but quickly realized that the danger was as great at 40 miles an hour as it was at 80. It merely meant that the crowd waited a longer time for me to clear the road and the remembrance of those hundreds of cars behind me and the realization that the hunt had commenced made me put on top speed and hope that Providence would be kind to the weak intellects which allowed their, which allowed their possessors to run such risks so callously. That the starting note from Charles Jarrett, the first man off the podium at the 1903 Paris to Madrid race. It would not get better from there. It would only get worse. And it took hours and hours to get people out of Versailles and on the road. Many more hours than was actually predicted. So when we think about this, you, you have competitors that are already chopping at the bit to leave. They've been waiting hours to actually get away from Versailles. And now they're on the road in these massive cars and they are hurtling through crowds of people. And when I say hurtling through crowds of people... At times, I mean hurtling through crowds of people. The reason that this race became such a disaster was because of the amount of death and destruction that was wrought in just a single day of competition. These cars, as mentioned by Jarrett, could run up to 80 miles an hour, and they would do it with chain drive and with rear brakes only and with very little suspension technology and horrible tires that would explode at the drop of a hat if you looked at them sideways. And the carnage did not get noticed by the racers until those fast finishers got to Bordeaux. But for the spectators and for the other people that were watching this event and were driving in it, the carnage began pretty soon after many of the racers got out of the downtown Paris area. The public, because of the frenzy made by newspapers and magazines promoting the event, was just packed to the rafters, and there were a lot more of them and a lot further out on the course than many people expected. They expected as soon as they got out of Paris proper that the crowds would dissipate. Well, as it turns out, effectively the whole entire race route on this first day was lined with people. Some some towns and some cities, there were a few people, but many small towns, the entire populations were lining the streets over these rough and uneven roads. And the end result of that is that the death toll and the carnage toll begins to mount almost immediately. Quoting from a story from Unique Cars and Parts in Australia from 1954, a story written by a guy named Sammy Davis called From Paris to Oblivion. There is a section of the story called Spectators, the Biggest Obstacle. And now this is, uh, this is, a, this is a pretty pretty amazing way to say it. To quote Davis's story, This was not always successful. Between Versailles and Chartres, five cars plunged into walls of living flesh, George Richard, swerving hard in an attempt to avoid the foolhardy spectators, hit a closed gate of a level crossing. Leslie Porter, driving a British Wolseley, was forced off the road and immediately overturned, his mechanic being pinned beneath the blazing car. Charles Delaney, coming into a turn masked by the crowd, skidded wildly, hit a heap of stones, smashed one wheel to splinters, and also overturned. To those drivers who started out later in the morning, the road appeared as one long ribbon splattered with the wreckage of cars and the mutilated bodies of dying and dead men, women, and children. And still, the crowd swelled out onto the course. If it sounds nightmarish, it absolutely was, and it only got worse from here. Now, there were certain areas of the course where certain uh, special things were taking place. For instance, in the town of Tours, when the cars came in, they were made to get down to basically a very slow pace. They had to drive behind a pilot cyclist that limited their speed. And then at the city limits, the, the cyclist would peel off and the cars would speed off, reaching speeds of, you know, 70 to 80 miles an hour. 
We talked about Jarrett and his DeDedra car. We talked about Louis Renault, who was the number three lever, and a man named Deniff, who was the number two lever off of the podium. Well, Jarrett had mentioned he didn't like his chances of winning the race, and frankly, that was a, a, an accurate feeling because both Deniff and Renault had passed the DeDedra by the time they got to Tours. So Louis Renault is hauling along, and things seem to be going pretty well here. We can talk about the Germans, uh, a couple of their cars, the 90-horsepower Mercedes was zipping along, and that thing was making good power, and, of course, the Moors, which was flying. The Moors started a little bit later in the order, but it was making uh, it was making good speed. So we check back in with our man Jarrett, and we can talk about what was happening with him after the city of Tours. We again quote from Sammy Davis's story. Soon after tours, Jarrett, whose car had not been previously run in, found that the engine was feeling much looser and smoother, so he opened it up to an average near of nearly 90 miles per hour, pulling into Poitour in the second-place spot behind Louis Renault. Behind him, Marcel Renault, Louis' brother and the chief engineer of the company, made a desperate attempt to overtake Thierry de Coville, hit a projecting down drain pipe by the roadside, spun twice out of control, and crashed into a ditch, he was fatally injured by the car's steering wheel. Mark Mayhew, driving a Napier, broke a steering arm and went off the road at full speed. Another car crashed into a horse-drawn cart that piled high with wood and driven by a farmhand with muscles where his brain should have been, was ambling casually along the course and suffered a fatal accident. This is all happening in this very small stretch of road. We're not talking about 300 miles outside of of Paris at this point we've barely gone 50 to 70 miles into the race and the hits just keep on coming as we now talk about kind of a two-car battle beginning to form up with a guy named Fernand Gabriel who is driving a Moors and a man named George Stead who is driving a Dededrick and they're down in the course and they are now racing effectively head-to-head so the two cars and again we go back to Sammy Davis's story and we quote him The two cars swayed madly at the cambered road. First one and then the other would lead, each in turn blinding the other with billowing trails of of thick dust. Neither would give way. While the battle continued, another British driver who had run off the road while avoiding a woman amputated his own crushed foot, which was caught in the chain drive, and then frenziedly dragged his son from under the wrecked car. But he was too late. The boy was already dead. On the narrow twisting road from Barberzou to Libourne in Bordeaux, which is today bypassed by a national highway, many more accidents occurred. Coming at a time when the brakes on most of these cars needed adjustment and the drivers were extremely tired, this constant succession of curves proved disastrous. Lorraine Barrow, a veteran of many races, swerved sharply to avoid hitting a dog, which a child had pursued into the road. At over 80 miles an hour, his Dededra crashed head-on into a tree, and Barrow, along with his mechanic, were fearfully injured. Both died later. Closer examination of the wreck showed that the chassis had buckled until it resembled a a concertina. The engine had been ripped from the frame, the piston rods had gone right through the side of the engine, and every tire had been ripped off. For weeks afterward, one spring hanger remained buried to the hilt in the tree. Meanwhile, continuing their magnificent battle, Stead and Saileron came up to a curve, wheel to wheel at terrific speed, and suddenly, a spectator appeared in the road. Both drivers applied their brake levers hard, their traction broken, the cars spun sideways and collided. By sheer strength, Saileron managed to keep the moors on the road, but Stead's car crashed into the ditch and overturned in a great cloud of smoke. Both driver and mechanic were killed. Madame Camille Dugast, holding sixth place with the Dededric, saw the smash and pulled up to give what aid she could. Camille, very attractive at the time, and very tough, was the sensation of the race as far as the spectators were concerned. She drove as well as any man, yet there was nothing even remotely masculine about her. The death toll mounting now with drivers. The one thing we now need to talk about is what's happening with spectators. And as scary and as sad as what's happening with the drivers, they at least signed up for the risk. They at least understood mildly what they'd be getting into. For the spectators who were completely uneducated about what cars could do, capable of, the physics of what was happening, the insane amount of energy that these cars were uh, stored as they were hurtling by or trying to navigate the corners... They were standing behind ropes if they were standing behind anything. And they were standing on the outside of corners. And they were standing in the middle of the street. And they were trying to touch the cars as they came by. And they were being injured and dying at a very, very ghastly clip. If you think the drivers themselves were 
uh, having life-ending injuries very quickly. There were more than 100 recorded injuries of spectators. There are reports that say 200 injuries of spectators, and there are many reports saying that among the 100 to 200 injuries were dozens of deaths. Officially, the count was like 12 to 14 spectator deaths, but the news reporting was so shoddy from along the way and where these were happening and the pressure from race organizers to suppress a lot of this information, um, there is no real clear-cut answer as to how many spectators got killed. But we're talking women, we're talking children, we're talking adults, we're talking soldiers. It was awful. And the racers as they are arriving the fast cars as they are arriving in bordeaux are finally starting to hear some rumors of some crummy things that may or may not have happened on the track they were hearing these stories of oh there was an accident here and oh that person was hurt oh that person's dead what do you mean those spectators got killed what do you mean a child died what do you mean a soldier got killed the news was chasing them once they got to the finish line of this first day of racing in Bordeaux. It was so bad and it was so controversial that on May 20 uh, rather May 25th, 1903, the San Francisco Call newspaper in San Francisco, California ran on the front page a story which was entitled Nine Lives Are Lost in Paris Madrid Automobile Race and the Governments of France and Spain Stop the Contest. Their numbers were low in terms of the death count here, but their reporting was accurate in terms of what was to happen next with this event. The subheadline: Series of fatal disasters mars exciting run in which men record speed records. Opening paragraph. The first stage of the Paris-Madrid automobile race from Versailles to Bordeaux, which Louis Renault dashed a furious pace into Bordeaux, having made a record run of 8 hours and 27 minutes. An hour later, Mr. Gabriel arrives, still with a better record of 8 hours and 7 minutes. It is estimated from the times that these automobiles covered an average of 62 miles an hour on the road. Those victories, however, were clouded by a series of accidents, having in several cases fatal results. Marcel Renault, the winner of the Paris-Vienna race last year, Lorraine Barrows, a well-known automobilist, and Renault chauffeur were seriously injured and killed, it is believed, in accidents while racing. The most terrible accident occurred near Bonval, 10 miles from Chartres, where a machine overturned at a railroad crossing and took fire. The chauffeur was caught under the automobile and burned to death, while two soldiers and a child were also killed. A chauffeur was badly injured by an accident to his motor car near Angelum. A woman crossing the road in the neighborhood of Abils was run over by one of the motor cars and killed. Mr. Stead and his chauffeur, who were the first reported to have been killed, are still alive, it seems. Their car collided with another car in which Stead had been racing for kilometers wheel to wheel and was completely overturned in a ditch near Montion. Stead was caught under the machine while a chauffeur was hurled a distance of 30 feet and his head and body were badly cut. Stead would later pass away from his injuries. But this is how big a story this was and how bad a story it was. It made it from Paris to San Francisco with no real electronic ability in two days. And it didn't just get reported in San Francisco, it was front page news. This was globally one of the, if not the biggest news story in the world. It was a nightmare for the government of France. It was a nightmare for the government of Spain. And the race was one day old this all happened in a span of like eight or nine hours all these people crashing and dying and being injured and wounded in the body count and the hundreds of people that are maimed all in the span of a day what happens now what do you what do you do when you're confronted with this bad a disaster an international spectacle an embarrassment what do you do if you're the government here you act swiftly and you put a very, very, very quick end to the whole thing. That's what you do, and here's how they did it. So we now kind of move our focus to Bordeaux, France. The fastest cars have made it. The drivers that have the big heavy-duty equipment that have survived without killing themselves or anybody else are in Bordeaux. And as I mentioned, the rumors of what has happened behind them are beginning to trickle in. So... Um, to quote once again Mr. Sammy Davis from 1954 his reporting of the event called From Paris to Oblivion here we go and I quote then the rumors commenced 
No one who was present will ever forget that day in Bordeaux, the anxious rush for news as each survivor arrived, the frantic inquiries for friends and cars amid the growing hostility of the crowd and the appalling stories of disaster. The whole thing seemed unreal. The day, the race, the horror. But it was only too true. None of the drivers knew whether or not the officials would allow the race to continue, and most of them wondered if they would have the courage to go on if the next day's slaughter was permitted. Louis Renault was frantic at the news that his brother was seriously injured, not knowing that he was already dead. Jarrett's joy at his car's magnificent run was utterly destroyed by the news that he alone had survived out of all the Dedrick team. The entire team was killed except for Jarrett. I mean, it's just, it's straight out of the, it's straight out of a horror movie, this thing. So what happens? And the first thing we should report on, I guess, are the results. Fernand Gabriel, the guy that was uh, in that battle back and forth with Stead, who ended up going off the road and getting killed, was declared the winner in the Moors. So the Moors, yay, the Moors won the race. An average speed of 65.3 miles an hour. Louis Renault, 62.3 miles an hour, came in second. Another Moors driven by a guy named Celeron came in third. And our man, Charles Jarrett, whose report we have been referencing, was nailed or decided to be the fourth finisher. To go back to Sammy Davis. An air of indecision and doom hung over Bordeaux, but not for long. The government impounded all the race cars, not a single engine could be started, and behind horses, the machines were towed to the rail depot and shipped back to Paris. The heroic age of road racing was over. After some discussion, it was decided that there should be a classification of the cars, even though the race had been stopped only some 300 miles after starting. Places were figured on an elapsed time basis, and the final results were as I just gave them to you. 99 cars had managed to finish the race. The ghostly influence of the Parade de Madrid race is still felt strongly today. Because of the great disaster, modern sports car clubs and road racing associations have had to make sure, as is humanly possible, that all races are held on courses which are properly controlled and they're reasonably safe for drivers and spectators alike. The emphasis has been on closed course racing because greater crowd control can be exercised and the drivers and cars can be protected to some degree by the use of hay bales, escape roads, television signals, or telephone signal systems, flagmen, no passing zones, repair areas, pits, and more. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. That kind of closes out our look back into Sammy Davis's 1954 report of the story. Believe it or not, race organizers tried to argue or bargain with the government. They were so afraid of losing their shirts on this thing financially that they wanted the event to continue. And what their argument was, they said, hey, listen, okay, um, don't cancel this. Just let us get to the Spanish border. We're not going to race there. Just let us drive on the legal speed limit to the Spanish border, and then we'll race from the Spanish border to Madrid. So, hey, uh, sorry about what happened yesterday, okay? Hey, guys, sorry that that happened, but just let us uh, drive as we normally would to the border of Spain, and then we'll be out of your hair, and you won't have to deal with uh, you won't have to deal with us anymore. Hey, it's all good. Just let us get to Spain. Well, um, that was a, a fine plan, except for the fact that the Spanish government was in lockstep with the French and said, oh, no, you don't. We do not want you here whatsoever. King Alphonse of Spain... Um, who might not have agreed with the French approach to many things uh, in his life, certainly agreed with this one. And he absolutely 100% said, no, you will not bring those cars into my country. So as is mentioned, the French Parliament, a governing body that is famously spends most of its time in deadlock and is famously slow moving, acts with incredible swiftness here. By the end of the day, the emergency council or a council of ministers was called together um, and the race officials were immediately forced to shut down the race, as mentioned. Spain said, you can't come in here. The government didn't even want the cars running anymore. And so, again, the French government orders that the engines cannot be started. They are pulled by mules, by horses to the train station. The race is then reported in French news as the race to death. Racing is called a death sport, and by general decree, it is recognized that there will not ever be another public street race in France. In fact, it was 24 years later, 
that Europe had its next open road race, and that was the Mille Emilia that began in Italy in 1927. The laws of driving in France were changed by this. The cars were limited to speeds of 25 miles an hour. Different cities and towns locked the speed down even harder than that. The newspapers went berserk on this thing, as you can imagine. Some of the newspapers actually were kind of in favor of of not banning racing altogether, but by regulating it. But many of the newspapers were absolutely openly against the idea of racing cars. There was a general backlash against the automobile industry. Um, It couldn't have gone any worse. And that's why I say that this was the worst race ever held. Because unlike an event like Le Mans in 1955, when when LeVay went into the crowd with his car and the, the scores of people that were killed at that race, and yes, it did stop... Um, automotive competition in places like uh, Switzerland ban racing for you know forever. I think they still might have a ban on racing. And it changed the rules on a lot of stuff. That happened at Le Mans at an organized race. It was an incredible tragedy, but there was a 1956 24 Hours of Le Mans. It didn't stop the race. It, it, it changed a lot of things. It changed regulations, but there wasn't a race the next year. When we talk about the effect this had, it went not only to stopping road racing at all in France. It stopped it in the entirety of Europe for a quarter century. It it caused the entire industry of the automotive, I should, I should say it caused the entire automobile industry to suffer with regulations and with changes to the laws. And it made it all the way up to the French prime minister who signed off on it in the first place. I mentioned his name earlier. Emile Combes was the prime minister of France. He was accused of actually being responsible for this death because he allowed the race to happen and to his he turned into a complete politician he stood up in front of everybody and said hey man like i I didn't know the cars could go that fast Uh, it's 1903 uh what do you want out of me i'm the prime minister i'm not a mechanic how was i supposed to know it was supposed to be uh any dangerous uh any this level of danger how was i supposed to know cars could go 90 miles an hour how am i supposed to know any of this stuff i thought it was just going to be a fun car race that our population wanted to have He said that he was against any restriction of the automotive manufacturers. And believe it or not, his word did carry some weight. So it didn't get as bad as it could get for the French manufacturers. They still had to deal with the backlash and some some regulations. But it didn't get as bad as it could have gotten because Combs deftly, in his own way, handled the situation by saying, hey, listen, you guys all wanted to have this race. I said he could have it. How am I supposed to know a bunch of people are going to get killed? How am I supposed to know we're going to become an international terrifying headline? And it only went a couple of days in the news, and like everything else, it came off the front page. It made that big immediate splash, and 1903 is the same as 1923, 1953, and the same as it'll be in 2023. A big news event happens, and then... It's over. We go back now to the story written, the first-hand story written by Charles Jarrett about his experience and his kind of uh, his kind of way that he experienced what happened behind him. We quote Mr. Jarrett. I was surprised to see so many friends at the control in Bordeaux. English and French, they impressed upon me their gratification and satisfaction at my having got through so successfully. Then, with an official on my car, I made my way into town to the closed park where the cars were to be locked up until the second stage of the race the next day. A long interval took place before any other cars arrived. I made my way to the hotel and afterwards back to the control to watch the other arrivals. One or two cars arrived, but very little information was forthcoming from their drivers. They all seemed very vague as to what had happened to any cars other than that of their own. Then, in an extraordinary manner, it began to be whispered that terrible accidents had happened, but no one knew from whence these rumors had come, only everybody was uneasy and fearful. Presently, the cars began to roll in thick and fast, and the rumors were confirmed by various drivers, but instead of being accurate in detail, everything was exaggerated. Every driver had a different story until it seemed at last as if the road of passage must have been bestrewed with dead and dying. Who was killed? Who was hurt? What had happened? 
A feeling of horror came across all of us assembled in the control that we had participated in a great carnage, and the lack of reliable information made matters so much worse. Sharon eventually arrived, having driven a touring car in the race with ladies as passengers, as he had not been able to get his racing car in time, and from him, I learned more than from anyone else. There had undoubtedly been terrible accidents, and I was horrified to learn that Lorraine Barrow instead, on their Dedrics, were smashed up and seriously injured and not expected to live. Barrow's mechanic having been killed on the spot, Stead had been cut down by another car and capsized at 80 miles an hour while Barrow had struck a dog, deranged his steering, and stuck a, struck a tree at top speed. Marcel Renault had also been smashed, and there had been dozens of other accidents en route. Sharon said he had never seen anything like it, as the scene on the road had presented to him. Other cars came in and stories were told an English driver by, driven by a novice had upset in a corner and the unfortunate Englishman accompanying the driver had been pinned under the car which caught fire and burned him to death. In Shellerow, a child had been dashed and had dashed in front of one of the cars and a soldier had rushed to save him. The driver, endeavoring to avoid both, not only struck and killed them, but also dashed into the crowd which hemmed the course. I need not to recapitulate the list of deaths. The English papers on the 25th of May had the details of what they termed the race to death. Road racing was dead. Never again would it be possible to suggest a speed event over the open roads in a sport which, well, it was a sport, was, in my opinion, the best of all sports. It was finished. The peculiar thing about it all was that outside the outside world did not appreciate it up to that moment that there was an element of danger in motor racing. One or two drivers had certainly been injured, but accidents were very rare. And then, suddenly... By one of those compensations which occur with all things in life, the toll was paid in one event, and so heavy was it that with a shudder and a gasp, the world at large realized that motor racing might be really deadly. The French government decided the matter for everybody concerned. The race was stopped forthwith, and all the racing cars taken possession by authorities. Special trains were secured, and the cars were dragged to the railway station behind horses and returned to Paris. Not even the motors were allowed to be started. It's unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable, this story, only because of the fact that it's a story of ignorance. It's a story of ignorance on the behalf of the spectators and a story of ignorance on behalf of the racers themselves. What did they expect to happen? The answer is they didn't know what to expect to happen. They hadn't done this before at this rate of speed, at this scale, at this size. And when human beings do something for the first time with no prior knowledge with no precedent the precedent of that is often pretty nasty and that goes down for everything from the formation of the game of football to the acceptance of racing cars as a dangerous activity for the people in the cars and the people watching scientific american a magazine that has been around for many 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 years over 175 of them reported on this event in their sciences section and a story filed on the, in the June 20th, 1903 issue. It begins as, The Paris to Madrid race, which was held on the 24th of May, has certainly been a unique event in the history of the automobile. Never before has there been a greater show of interest in the part of the public in an automobile race, and it is estimated at least 2 million persons were ranged along the route at different points between Paris and Bordeaux. The event is also remarkable for the high power and speed of the new machines, some of which undoubtedly reached 80 miles per hour. The face led off in the most brilliant manner, having no less than 220 starters, but after the finish of the Bordeaux stage, which occupied the first day, the news came of a number of serious accidents, including the death of Marcel Renault, and the race was not allowed to proceed further. As it is, however, it has been a great event, and one which will long be remembered. Those words are all true, except the great event part. It is long remembered because here we are, 117 years later, on a medium of media that no one in the age of 1903 could even conceive of thinking existed, talking about the 1903 Paris to Madrid disaster. It is a story without parallel in the world of racing. It changed racing forever. And now you know about something that you likely had never even heard about before and I hope you're a little bit more intrigued to go look into it. I've referenced all the materials I could find on this event in terms of first-hand accounts and news reporting from the era, but I will leave you with one more piece of audio. Imagine yourself standing there, maybe a young guy, maybe a young man, maybe a kid, 
watching machines that you had only ever heard rumors about come charging by you at 80 to 90 miles an hour. One of those machines would have been a 1903 Panhard, and you're standing there watching it come close to you, make a bend in the road, and accelerate as hard as it could possibly go as it heads down the course. This is exactly what your ears would have heard. To us, it sounds like a glorified riding lawnmower, but to the excited populace in France in 1903, it sounded like the future. And for some people, it sounded like the most terrifying thing they'd ever heard and seen in their lives. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. Please head to dorkomotive.com, check out the website and all the features there, as well as consider hitting that donate button. I love making these podcasts. You want to throw me a couple of bucks because you enjoy listening to them? I would certainly appreciate it. I'm Brian Loans, and I thank you for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. Spread the word. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net.